I was scheduled to be gone today, and I am, but I wanted to share this passage of Scripture with you. We're going to look at one verse today, and I can't wait to try to explain it and to communicate it and hopefully to apply it to your life. I was reading some things on the Internet. You know how you read different stuff on the Internet, and you come across some things? Well, this, this really applies to our message this morning, but it takes me a minute to get there. So just indulge me for a second. The Internet uh, illustration and article talked about mountain lions, and it said, what do you do if you're approached by a mountain lion? And I thought, well, that's probably not going to happen in Florida, but we do go to California from time to time, so it's possible. The article said, if you see a mountain lion, stay calm. Well, that's great. Great advice. Who would stay calm with a mountain lion? Is there anybody in the room that would do that? Do not crouch down or bend over a mountain lion. I don't plan on it. Do you? Do not run from a mountain lion. Now, this is really good advice. Running may stimulate a mountain lion to chase. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't know how I would be calm, and I don't know how I would not want to just flee from a mountain lion. And then number four, it said, never approach a mountain lion, especially one that is feeding. I'm good with that. Great advice. So this morning, while I'm working on this very message, I'm at John Chestnut Park, close to our home and neighborhood, and I've been there for over 30 minutes. And 20 feet away from me is this guy. It's at least eight feet. It may be nine or 10. I'm a preacher. I'm not exaggerating. The tail was in the water. I am 20 feet away. I've been there for maybe 30 minutes, and I observe observe that I am near a very large alligator. I'm not about to approach the alligator. This is a message today about approach. Everybody has an approach. A golfer has an approach to a golf hole. An airplane approaches an airport. You all have an approach to problems. You have an approach to conflict. Some of you are direct. Some of you are indirect. Some of you like to avoid. Some of you go volcanic. Some of you are very quiet. Everyone in the room has an approach. You have an approach to church. You have an approach to God. You have an approach to money. You have an approach to your friendships. We're going to talk about approach today. A couple of psychologists wrote this article, and they said, you may not be approachable if, and so see if you fit in any of these categories, And if you're not very approachable, see if you care to become more approachable. You may not be approachable if you don't make eye contact. You may not be approachable if you are confrontational. And they explain there's a difference between having to confront and being cantankerous, always being a confrontational individual. You may not be approachable if you are a nonconformist. And again, it doesn't mean you agree with everybody. You're not a yes woman or a yes man, but are you trying to not conform to get attention? You may not be approachable if you smell bad. I can't explain any more about this. This is a no-brainer. I really can't help you with this one. We get this. You may not be approachable if you smell bad. Your resting expression is a scowl. And you see people who may be very happy on the inside, but you don't know it. And you're afraid to approach them. They don't have a yes face. They have a no face. I call this their, they look like they've been baptized in, in lemon juice. And there's some people that just look like they've been baptized in lemon juice. 
You may not be approachable if you overdress. Now, that was new to me. I read it, didn't fully understand it, but it said you may not be approachable if you go too high in your dress. You gossip, that makes sense. Or you shut people down. Or you act arrogant. Again, most of those make sense. Let me just finish the article because it did have some good suggestions. It had some tips that if you want to become a more approachable person, they had some recommendations. If you want to be approachable, smile. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? People who smile, who have a yes face, you're more inclined to come up and to go up and to talk to them. Be easily interested. Someone's not interested in the conversation. Their eyes are looking away while you're trying to talk to them. You don't want to, to be with them. You may be approachable if you have a friendly, open, engaged demeanor. These make sense, don't they? You laugh at yourself. We like people who can make fun of themselves, poke fun of themselves with good humor. Radiant energy and good humor makes perfect sense. Try to remember the person's name. People like hearing their name. And so we're going to talk this morning about Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. This is all about approach. Everything that I've just said leads us up to this one verse talking about being approachable. This is a great verse. And this verse says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, if you're new to church, if you're brand new to Christianity, you're scratching your head with this verse going, I don't quite understand this. Can I approach a holy God? How would that work? I know my faults. I know my phobos. I know my struggles. I know my challenges. How could I ever approach? I would be scared to death to approach a holy God. And, and you want me to approach him with confidence? And, and I'm not really sure I understand the difference. You might be thinking between mercy and grace, so we may receive mercy and find grace. What's the difference between grace and mercy? Well, I need help. I'm open. Maybe you can help me today with something, because I've got lots of needs. My goal in the next 10 minutes are to use two words two big 50-cent words that explain all of Christianity. In fact, I think in 10 minutes we can explain Christianity, all 66 books. This is a tall order, an audacious task. But Christianity does not begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. doesn't begin with the cross. doesn't even begin with the resurrection. Christianity really begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So give me 10 minutes, we'll come to two words. These two words encapsulate all of Christianity. We start with one pivotal piece of history, which is the fall, called the, the fall of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day they ate of that tree, they would surely die. And we know the story. We know Adam ate. We know Eve ate. And we know they began to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And God said, no, 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 no. You're not covering yourself up with fig leaves. And God takes an innocent animal, an animal that had done no wrong, and God kills this animal, and he then covers them with the skins of this animal. This is the first piece of history. Genesis chapter 3. 
The Lord God made garments of skin. Remember, they took the fig leaves, and God said, no, 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 fig leaves aren't going to cut it. I'm taking an innocent animal, an animal that's done no wrong, shedding the blood, taking that animal, using the skins. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and for his wife and clothed them. The next rather large piece of Israelite history was the 10th plague. Moses has the burning bush. Remember the burning bush story? God says to Moses, I want you to go. I've heard the cries of my people. And Moses then finally, reluctantly, he goes, and there's 10 plagues. And we got through plague one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. They were all devastating, and Pharaoh's heart gets hardened, and he doesn't let the people go. And finally, the 10th plague is going to be the death of all the firstborn both of of cattle and of children, of everybody in the land. But God said to the Israelites, I will save you. What I need you to do is to take an innocent lamb, slay the lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorpost of your home. And so here's what we read in Exodus. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel, and he said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Now, just picture yourself as a dad or as a little boy. And the dad says to the little boy, come with me, son. We're going out in the backyard, and we're taking the pet lamb. And the boy is horrified as the dad has the knife, and he slits the throat of this pet lamb, and they spill the blood and take the blood, take some of the hyssop on a branch, and cover the door frames of their house. And the little boy is asking the dad, dad? What did the lamb do? Why are we doing this? Is he guilty? And the father's trying to explain, no, son, the lamb is completely innocent. So take this, slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, you will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame, and you will pass over that way, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. And we know from history that is exactly what happened. And the two words that describe Christianity are right here in this story of Exodus. And the two words that describe Christianity are right there in the book of Genesis. So we've got the fall, and we've got the skins, that are being covering now, Adam and Eve. And we also have uh, in Exodus the same kind of an idea of where an innocent animal is slain, a lamb, and the blood is now put on the doorposts and the Israelites live. The death angel came over and he passed over when he saw all of the blood. The third example in history, it's rather confusing in Leviticus chapter 16. So let me just explain it. In Leviticus chapter 16, we're introduced to what's called the Day of Atonement. We know this as Yom Kippur, and every year they still celebrate. There's still a celebration of Yom Kippur. But the Day of Atonement had two animals. One animal got to go free, and one animal got its throat slit, and the blood then again spilled and poured around the basin of the altar. And so the priest would offer all these sacrifices for himself to atone for his sins. And then on the animal that got to go free, 
the priest would now lay both hands on the neck of that animal and call down all the sins that everybody could ever think of. He would talk about, you know, uncle so-and-so stole money and aunt so-and-so, you know, got drunk and did something she shouldn't have done and how certain, you know, this person betrayed this person. Every sin you could ever imagine, the priest is calling down on that one goat. That's called the scapegoat. And someone would take the scapegoat then out into the wilderness and for one year, all the sins of the people would kind of be appeasing God and they would be on that animal as it went away. The other goat wasn't so lucky. The other goat lost his life. And again, if you were a little boy or you're a little girl and you're asking about the Day of Atonement, the answer would be that animal did nothing wrong. That animal was not inappropriate in any way, shape, or form, but it was going to die for the sake of its people. Three key pieces of Israelite history. First of all, God, no fig leaves. We're going to cover you with the blood of an animal, the skin of an animal. Second of all, no, this isn't going to work unless you take an innocent lamb and you slaughter it and you cover it on the doorposts of your house and the death angel will pass over. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, it's so critical. One animal escapes, one innocent animal loses his life. And so we fast forward now to Jesus. And Jesus is walking on the banks of the Jordan River. And John the Baptist sees Jesus as Jesus comes walking toward him. And John says these words, and everybody got it. Everybody knew what John was saying. It was messianic. It was prophetic. It was salvific. Everybody in that culture understood what the prophet John was saying. John points, and the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Don't underestimate this. There would be a lamb who would be a substitute. And the two key words are substitutionary atonement. There would have to be a man whose blood was so clean and so pure that that man's blood, the Messiah, would die in your place so that you could live forever. Called substitutionary atonement. And John just kind of culminates all of this by saying, look, everybody, you know all the things in history. You know all the innocent animals that have been slain. You know all the things that have happened. But here is the Lamb of God, and He takes away the sins of the world. And that word, uh, that word atonement, it's a big word. But think about the word atone, A-T-O-N-E. Break up the word atone, and you have at one, at one, at one, at one. When you atone, you become one, and God wants you to be one with Him. God wants you to be able to have that incredible relationship with Him, and it took the blood of His Son to make you at one to atone, and it had to be a substitutionary atonement because you're not good enough. You and I have sinned. You and I make mistakes. Our blood would never atone for our own sins. 
And so this is why on the cross, Jesus says the things that he says. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land, Matthew 27. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamna sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And at that moment, this very moment in history, all of your sins, all of my sins are heaped on Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, for the first time in his life, did not feel the presence of his Father because the Father looked away at all that sin. And Jesus became your substitutionary atoning Messiah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. Now the gospel writer John adds to this and says, Jesus cried out, it is finished. It is finished. Meaning I have now made substitutionary atonement for whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord. And at that very moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The rocks split and the earth shook violently. Christianity can be summarized in two words, substitutionary atonement. All right, let's go back to our key verse today. It says, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It's a big word, big uh, verse. I want you to embrace this. This is a game changer. We've talked a lot about how to win the day, how to win the morning, how to win the afternoon, how to win the night, how to win the afternoon. This is a winning verse. It's an active verse. It's something you must embrace and participate and do. So let's break this verse down in just a couple of seconds here and see if you can get some of your mind around this. Because of what Jesus did, because of that substitutionary atonement, every day, every morning, every afternoon, every night, every second, every moment, every hour, I can approach God's throne. Now, the reason I can approach God's throne is not because I'm such a great person, not because I'm so moral, I'm so holy, that I'm better than anybody else. I get to approach and you don't, or she gets to approach and I don't. It, it's, it's because of Christ. It's because of what Christ did for us on that cross, the substitutionary atonement. We can then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And so we can go into God's presence, not because we're so great, but because what Jesus did was so amazing, he imputed greatness in you and in me. And when God looks at you, he sees his son. He sees the son, the son's blood. When God sees you, he doesn't just see you, he sees his son in you. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may, and there's two things we have to do. I, I wind all this up to these two points. Receive mercy and find grace. Receive mercy and find grace. If you do not receive mercy, 
you will not be able to approach the throne of grace. And you won't have help in your time or times of need. So we must receive mercy. What does it mean to receive mercy? Mercy means God withholds something that I do deserve. And I do deserve condemnation. I do deserve separation from God. I do deserve to be out of his presence. But I'm going to receive what Jesus has done. Substitutionary atonement. I'm going to receive what Jesus has done for me. So I, I receive mercy. Well, I, I don't feel like I qualify for mercy. You don't. I don't feel like I've earned the mercy. You haven't. That's the whole point of Christianity. Christianity is he did for you what you could never do for yourself, substitutionary atonement. So I, I must receive that. I, I must receive what Christ has done. Christ took my sins, my issues, my guilt, my shame, Christ took all that which I couldn't do and I couldn't be, and Christ said, I'm covering you. I'm going to make you at one with my Father because I'm so great, not because you're so great. I have to receive that mercy. Let me ask you this question today. Have you received Christ's mercy? Have you said, yep, that's what I need that's what I want. I want to give my life to Christ. I want to humble myself. I want to surrender. I want to acknowledge that I could never approach the throne of grace without the King of Kings giving his life for me. Have you done that? Or are you still bowed up, bucking up, self-sufficient, trying to do things on, on your own? First of all, you, you must receive that amazing mercy. But I like the next part even better. Now, I, I couldn't get there without receiving mercy, but I like the next part even more. I, I must receive mercy, but Lord, I come to you, I approach you because of what Jesus did for me, and I'm going to find grace. I, I'm going to find grace. Grace is a gift. Grace is power. Grace is help. Grace is energy. Grace is insight. Grace is a leading. I, I'm coming to you because I've got all these decisions to make and I don't know what to do. I'm coming to you because I've got all these problems and I really don't know what to do. I'm coming to you because I've got all these wonderful opportunities in front of me and I'm not quite sure what to do. I'm coming to you. And I'm asking for your power and your presence and your clarity and your direction. I, I must find it. I must find, I receive mercy. I receive, I, I can't earn it, I can't get to, but I got to find grace. And grace is something that you do have to do. That's your prayer time, that's your counsel of wise Christian people around you, that's going to church, that's involved with men with men, women with women who are older and wiser and smarter and stronger. This is, this is how you find it. You spend time in the Scriptures, and you spend time reading. That's why we talk about when the morning, you spend time, prayer, and scriptures. I, I must find grace. And he wants to give you clarity. He wants to give you direction. He wants to give you insight. He is so willing. I, I, just, I, just, I just receive the mercy. It's too good to be true. I can't believe I get all this forgiven 
because of what he did. And I'm so guilty, and I made so many mistakes. But I receive the mercy. But I got to find the grace. I got to work at the grace. There's something I have to do to move toward clarity on God's will and purpose for my life. And I got problems. I got challenges. Now, this is where people get bogged down. They stop finding in grace. They stop looking for grace. Well, this is just how my story ends. Ah, poor pitiful me. I'm just, this is how, this is how it all unfolds. I, I'm never going to get better. I'm never going to grow. These cycles are going to keep getting me. I'm going to stay stuck. The answer to that is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and available to me. That's power. Incredible, enormous power. And I find it and I find it and I search for it and I look for it as for hidden treasure. I mine for grace. I receive mercy. Can't believe it. It's too good to be true. But I, I got to find grace because I need help and I have needs. And so I get to approach God's throne of grace with confidence. You honor him when you come into his presence with confidence. You honor him You don't strut into his throne room, but you come into his throne room with humility and confidence. You're my father. You care. You hear me. You're able. I need help. I'm laying this before you. I'm asking you to do something that I can't do. I know you can do this. I'm asking you to do this. I'm begging you to help me with this. And your heavenly father goes, all right, all right, let's go. Come on, come on, come on, let's go. This, this past Thursday, um, I was driving home and um, up in the East Lake area, traffic, you know, 5.30, 5.45, horrendous. And I'm driving home and um, I'm just kind of overwhelmed to call this friend of mine. He's a pastor uh, in another state. It's a college town. He's a great guy, great church. And he calls me all the time. Um, I, have, I, I have probably not initiated a phone call to him in, in like 10 or 12 years. I, I, I just, he calls me like every quarter and we catch up. And he's one of those guys that like he knows everything that's going on in churches and the brotherhoods and denominations. And he keeps up with all these different pastors and staff people. And I don't keep up with any of that. I, I I'm so out of that loop that I'm focused here. But he's like global. He don't, he, he's in touch with everything going on. And I really am not because I don't really care. But I'm driving home, 545 Thursday evening. And I'm overwhelmed with God's Spirit leading me to call this guy. And so I call him. And the Bluetooth, I'm in the car and he's got his Bluetooth on and his wife's driving. And I can barely understand him. I can hear her clearly, but I can barely understand him. And she says, as I just exchanged pleasantries, well, I guess you know what happened. I guess that's why you're calling. I said, no, I don't have any idea. I was just calling to check in with you. You're always checking up on me. I just want to call and see how you're doing. And so my friend, pastor, 
they just had gone to four services and he has a really serious stroke and my brother my buddy is is not hardly he can barely talk his wife's doing most of the talking because the, the stroke affected that part of the brain where it impacts your speech and he's struggling to get these words out and I'm I, I'm trying to be positive and encouraging and and I, I realize that God's Holy Spirit has led me to call this guy and I'm I'm praying with them and I'm I'm, I'm trying to really encourage them they're in the process of not receiving mercy but they're in the process of finding grace what do we do we have a need what do we do our church needs us what do we do I'm the sole breadwinner of the family and I just had a major stroke they're going to find it and he's working with his church and his elders and their great elders great church but but my friend that's a story where I don't have a bow to it and right now in your life, there may not be a nice bow tied on top of your story yet because the pursuit is finding the grace. And how did we do that? We go right into that throne room and we pray and we seek and we beg and we ask God and we confess sins and we're saying, Lord, it's me. I'm in great need of your help substitutionary atonement. We receive mercy and we find grace. And I just want to tell you this. The reason that I think we should work so hard at finding grace is no amount of exterior success is going to fix your internal mess. No amount of external success is going to fix your internal mess mess. Doesn't matter how many degrees you get. Doesn't matter how many cars you have. Doesn't matter how many houses you have. It doesn't matter how successful externally you are. Only receiving mercy and finding grace will ever begin to fix the internal mess. No amount of external success will ever fix your internal mess. And so we receive mercy we find grace. God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. This is substitutionary atonement. Christ died for us. However, it's written what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. That's finding grace. These are the things that God has revealed to us by the Spirit. He wants to reveal things to you. You've got to find it, but he'll reveal it to you. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. He exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're going to continue to worship right now. We're going to continue to receive mercy and we're going to find grace. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We come boldly into your throne room. What a potent, powerful, little bitty verse tucked in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. 
and we embrace it and we receive it and we search for it with all of our hearts. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray.